Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I'd like to welcome back our listeners to part two of an interview with Dr. John Dodson, who serves as director of NYU Langone's Geriatric Cardiology Program. So Dr. Dodson, welcome to you too. And let's begin where we left off at the end of the first part of the interview. The last time we discussed various topics, including the care of cardiology patients, and concluded with your comments regarding hospital discharge procedures. Once discharged, older patients with multiple morbidities can be at higher risk for hospital readmissions. Is there any likelihood that continuity of care might be compromised if, for an example, an NYU patient subsequently is readmitted to another hospital in the city? Likewise, a patient initially may have been treated elsewhere and then is readmitted to NYU. Do situations of this nature occur, and if so, do they have an impact on healthcare quality? So I think that's a great question, and uh, thanks again for having me for the second part of the interview. What I would say in response to this is that these situations occur quite frequently, and what we see most often is if somebody travels to a tertiary care center like our own for procedure or some other aspect of care, they might be hospitalized here, and then they're readmitted to their local community hospital, which is the easiest place to go if they have an urgent medical issue. And intuitively, I think most people would agree that care at the same hospital over time is optimal, especially in the setting of a readmission. And there are a few reasons for this. One is that the same doctors are there and they know the patient and their circumstances. And so, for example, if I'm involved as a cardiologist in somebody's care, uh, when they come back, I know them, I'm called, and and I, I understand what happened the last time. And even for nursing, some hospitals have actually taken to assigning a nurse who's responsible for the care of a patient if they're readmitted, if the nurse knew the patient from a prior admission. And of course, all the medical information is available in the electronic health record. And some records are available across institutions, but again, there are firewalls and other things that make it a little bit more difficult to access information. However, I think, unfortunately, it's impractical for a patient who travels a long way for a procedure to return if they have an urgent medical issue to our center. And uh, what happens in practical terms is that if someone has a procedure here and they're readmitted to another hospital that's closer to their home, they end up being transferred if the issue is related to the procedure itself, such as a post-surgical complication, but otherwise often they're treated locally and sent home. What I try to do when I'm involved in these cases is talk to the people providing care at the other institution to at least provide a context of what happened during the initial hospitalization and also to, to be available for ongoing advice. Well, thank you for that explanation. In a study in which you were involved, a point was made that multiple investigations have found that older adults are often excluded, either explicitly or implicitly, from cardiovascular clinical trials. Even when their inclusion does occur, underrepresentation by the age group 75 and older seems to be greater. Please inform our listeners why such an exclusion occurs and whether the situation seems to be improving. So that's another great question, and I think that Originally, there was some scientific justification for an age exclusion. So, for example, if you're performing a randomized trial that studies a medication or device that's designed to prevent mortality, 
you generally want to exclude patients with limited life expectancy. The rationale for this is that you lose statistical power to detect a difference between the two randomized groups if you have a higher number of deaths in both arms of the study, and those deaths might not be related to the condition you're studying at all. They just happen to occur uh, because of the baseline risk. The second reason is that older patients may have other characteristics such as cognitive or physical impairments that make it difficult to adhere to study procedures. However, in this day and age, when patients are living well into their 80s and 90s, I really don't see a reason to have an upper age limit for enrollment. In fact, we have a critical need for evidence about what works in this population, whether it be medications or cardiac procedures. And I think the studies with transcatheter aortic valve replacement, where there's a valve that's implanted in a minimally invasive manner, and these started to be published almost 10 years ago, in which patients by definition were very old and had a lot of comorbid medical illnesses, kind of set the stage for performing clinical trials in the oldest old. And so after those transcatheter valve replacement studies, we've seen other clinical trials also enroll older, sicker patients. I still see studies routinely published where the average age is 50 or 60 years. And it's difficult for me as a cardiologist to translate that to a patient who's 80 or 90. So I'd really like to see more clinical trials in what we call the oldest old because they're only increasing in terms of how frequently we're seeing them in our practice. Informal caregivers, such as family members, can play a highly useful role in what happens after a patient is discharged. What's being done at NYU from the standpoint of educating them and viewing them, perhaps, as valuable members of the healthcare team? So I don't think I can speak on behalf of the entire institution since a lot of family involvement varies by service. So post-surgical patients might receive different instructions for family involvement compared with medical patients. But what I can say in general is that educating family members is important to a good outcome after being discharged from the hospital. And a lot of this education in practice is being done by nursing around the time of hospital discharge. I think it's also important to note that we're now asking a lot more of family members than we used to because we've moved away from discharging patients to skilled nursing facilities and many are now going directly home. This is part of a larger trend where the use of nursing facilities appears to be declining across the U.S. And I don't think NYU or any other hospital system has figured out how to best support these family caregivers who can be under incredible stress, whether it be physical from things as simple as as lifting and, and helping transfer or emotional in terms of providing the support that's needed. And I see so many practical concerns in my office with family caregiving. And these can be as simple as a daughter who has to take time off of work every time their parent has a doctor's visit. Over time, things like this can can really become a burden. And I think one of the things that we'll need to understand in the future is how to best support caregivers and to decrease the burden on them and to also recognize the work that they're doing. And it's interesting today to look from a demographic standpoint of all the changes affecting the families in the U.S. compared to, say, the 1960s and even the 1970s, insofar as the rate of marriage is not what it used to be. And then you have the divorce rate. And if an individual is never married, doesn't have a spouse, or even if married at one time and still has grown children and they live in other parts of the country, then you really don't have that family caregiver to the extent that used to be present decades ago. Absolutely. And we see a lot of aging alone. And in in my practice in New York City, I see a fair number of patients who are in their 80s and 90s and really don't have that family caregiver for support. And so that becomes an especially challenging uh, situation to deal with. And I don't think there's an easy answer to those situations.
Some innovations in healthcare can take several years before widespread adoption occurs. In your area of practice, how successful have efforts been to achieve the translation of clinical findings and evidence-based research to the bedside in a timely manner? So in my opinion, when it comes to medications and devices, medicine does a pretty good job at translating evidence into clinical practice, and there's a general process in place. And so there's a clinical trial which shows the intervention is effective, the data are presented to the FDA, which then approves the intervention if the evidence is compelling, and then that intervention over time becomes adopted. I think what's more challenging is when we look at interventions such as cardiac rehabilitation, which is uh, one focus of my research and clinical practice, and we have decades of evidence that rehabilitation works for patients after a heart attack, but it's still underutilized. And there are many reasons for this, including factors such as institutional culture, lack of available facilities, potential inconvenience for patients. But what I'd say is that in the past decade or so, there have been concerted efforts by both cardiology and rehabilitation professional societies to increase the uptake of rehabilitation. So for example, having automated referrals in the electronic medical record for heart attack patients. And I think that these results are promising, uh, at least in the early stages. And I think there's still definitely room for improvement. For other more complex interventions, such as preventing hospital readmissions, it's really been difficult to translate some of these results into practice for a number of reasons. For one, these interventions can be very difficult to scale across institutions. So what works for hospital A may not work for hospital B. And another reason is that some of these interventions tend to be resource intensive and therefore may be difficult to justify financially. Some foreign-born patients may come from nations where Western allopathic medicine is not the only form of medical care, and I would guess New York City probably leads the nation in having representatives from lands all over the world. These individuals may arrive with different sets of beliefs about the origins of disease and how it should be treated. Do you ever encounter such situations, and how do you go about addressing their treatment preferences when they do differ from what customarily is provided in our hospitals? So I think what I try to do in my practice is spend a lot of time eliciting treatment preferences, and I practice mainly in a population that's over age 70. And studies have shown that across cultures, you know, this patient group really values things that are different from things that are typically valued by younger patients. So for example, instead of survival, function is very highly valued, preserving function, preserving cognition. And I think it's a critical part of care to understand whether someone wants a medication or an intervention that leads to a specific outcome. Since with every treatment, there's a potential downside, whether it's a medication side effect or a procedural complication. In terms of the origin of disease, fortunately in cardiology, we have decades of research into the origins of diseases, such as atherosclerosis and heart failure. There's still some that we don't know, but a lot of it that we do. And so my main role is to educate in understandable terms to the patient about the origins of their disease and what we know in terms of the best evidence to prevent and treat their condition. Whether foreign-born or originating here in the United States, many patients use complementary and alternative medicine. Do you find this something that occurs in your practice and is an effort made to determine what patients use and why they do so, since in some instances what they may be using may be inimical to what we're trying to do from the allopathic medical standpoint? Yeah, it's an interesting question and it's actually very common even in my older adult practice. A considerable number of patients use complementary and alternative therapies. I would say the most common is dietary supplements. And I actually have a clinical pharmacist that is part of the NYU system and has worked with our geriatric cardiology practice to review some of these supplements and their potential side effects. 
so one of the issues with supplements is that you don't always know that they contain what they say they contain. And there's no way to easily verify this in practice. So what I do for the more complicated cases, and I've had these where a patient is taking 15 supplements, I refer to the pharmacist and we try to take away what's potentially the most risky. For example, if there's a supplement that can increase blood pressure, which several supplements do. For the more straightforward cases, for example, one or two supplements, I generally tell patients that we're uncertain whether there's any benefit, but they can continue to take the supplement if they feel it helps. The most common ones I see in my practice are fish oil, magnesium, and coenzyme Q. Some cardiologists have anecdotal success with these supplements, but as someone who spends the majority of their time doing research, as I do, I can't strongly endorse these to my patients because there's really no rigorous evidence of benefit from the clinical trials that have been done. An important facet of healthcare would seem to be a patient's resilience and positive willingness to want to participate actively in all aspects of rehabilitation aimed at improving quality of life. From your standpoint, to what extent is that patient perspective taken into account in the research that's being conducted? So I think it's a really important thing to know, and we probably aren't doing a great job of assessing this in clinical practice. In my research and in some of the studies that I'm proposing, we're, we're looking at quantifying patients' willingness to engage in care as well as their engagement after they begin. And what I hypothesize is that these are essential predictors of good outcomes. And so we know, for example, with medication adherence that the patient perspective is very important about the perceived benefit. And my suspicion is that with a lot of the other interventions we're doing, that perspective is also very important to know. Cost, availability, and transportation problems are among the factors that contribute to the difficulty of obtaining in-clinic rehab services. What role do you see in-home telehealth therapy programs in addressing this situation for cardiac patients? So that's interesting, too. Uh, So selected medical centers, they've adopted telehealth rehab programs for decades, although it's still not the norm. But even before the advent of the iPhone, there were programs where a nurse would instruct a patient to exercise at home and provide counseling over the phone. The factors you've mentioned are definite barriers to attendance. And something as simple as paying for parking can be a barrier to someone who's instructed to attend 36 sessions of rehabilitation because the cost can really add up. And I think with the advent of mobile technologies, there are clearly many more options for both instruction and for monitoring. What role do you see digital health interventions administered during cardiac rehabilitation playing in reducing cardiovascular-related emergency department visits and rehospitalizations? My general feeling on the digital health interventions is that there's tremendous promise but very little scientific evidence. And I think that the promise is that we can have better patient engagement, which means that patients will be more physically active and will be more adherent to their medical regimen. But we really don't have large studies that have confirmed what are the best digital health strategies to use and what can, what can optimally engage patients. And so, again, this is a direction that my own research is going in and the research of a lot of other folks. And I think in the next five and 10 years, we're really going to know a lot more than we do now. Do you see ways in which rehabilitation services might benefit from leveraging existing and emerging kinds of social media platforms and using other modalities such as wearable devices and even virtual reality technology? So again, I think that this is going to be really important moving forward, and we still haven't figured out exactly which of these components are optimal to lead to better outcomes. You could hypothesize that somebody who wears an activity monitor, like a Fitbit or um, an Apple Watch, would be able to review their activity and would be more motivated to be active after achieving certain goals. 
We've seen several negative studies using the Fitbit technology. There was a recent study called Honor that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was a home exercise study for peripheral arterial disease patients that used a Fitbit activity tracker and telephone counseling, and it essentially showed no difference. Now, I think that there are other studies that likely will be positive in the future. And again, the key is really trying to figure out what are the best components for a patient to achieve the optimal outcome. In my mind, those components would be something that motivates the patient, for example, with cardiac rehabilitation, to stay with the prescribed program and to have not just a short-term, but also a long-term benefit and long-term behavior change. NYU Langone has a monthly interdisciplinary geriatric cardiology conference to serve the needs of older adults. Please describe how that activity functions from the standpoint of enhancing the care of these patients. So thanks for asking that question because I think this is one of the most important components of the NYU Geriatric Cardiology Program. And the conference was the idea of myself and Dr. Adam Skolnick, who's another cardiologist here who's had an interest in this area for a long time. And so when I came here in 2014, we decided to get geriatrics and cardiology together in a room once a month to discuss a particularly challenging patient case. And no other medical center in the U.S. was doing this. And so what we do is we have a conference with, I would say, 20 to 25 attendees. And one person presents a patient case and other people ask questions along the way. We try to listen to the patient's own preferences and values, as well as data on their current functional status, their medications, and then the specific question at hand. So we are in our fourth year, and we actually published our experience recently in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society to highlight some of the cases we've discussed. These cases range from whether to undergo an invasive procedure, to the management of complex medication regimens, to counseling at the end of life. And I think another important aspect of this conference is that we have trainees attend. So these trainees include students, residents, and fellows. And our hope is that they can take these sessions out into their own clinical practice and that this will eventually lead to tangible changes in how we care for older patients. It sounds as something that's extremely valuable. Do you know if it's been adopted in any shape or form similar to what you've done in other institutions around the country now? So I know what some other institutions have done is to apply these principles to specific situations. And so, for example, at some institutions, they'll have their transcatheter aortic valve team or their uh, heart failure team with somebody who has a geriatrics perspective, again, with the idea that these interventions may or may not work and knowing the geriatric principles can help inform the decision-making. And so I would say that the principles are being adopted elsewhere. Our hope, again, is that this will further spread in the years to come. And again, I think with the aging demographics that we're seeing, it's going to be essential to have more interdisciplinary conferences like this. I'm going to conclude part two of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to the topic of cardiac care. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your upcoming endeavors. Again, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having the opportunity to speak with you, and I really appreciate it. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.